don't miss the next thrilling, the next thrilling feature on this, your dynamic thrilling station. Don't miss it. Don't turn away. Don't miss those great golden sparkling moments that open up like a vast flower if you have the guts to stand up and take them. <laughs> Stay tuned for The Skeezik Show. And that reminds me, what was the name of Skeezix's stepfather's wife's uncle, who visited him for a long time at his little farm in Happy Dale? Oh, my mind is full of joy. Yes, sir. That's my baby. What are you giving this stuff? What do you mean? All right, all right, we're all ready. I'm going to do a terrible thing tonight in the worst of all possible tastes. <laughs> we'll award you the brass figure geek and tell me what that is. Yes, sir, you say, that's not bad. This is the $50,000 mystery sound for anyone out there who can identify this sound. Well, goody for you. Uh, Here's the clue, by the way. I'll give you the clue uh, immediately after the sound. It is not the sound of a match being struck in Studio 3. Oh, gee whiz, wait, that's the wrong end. What the heck is it doing? What a phony. What'd you do? Get me one of them exploding cigars? That's what it is. Pow! <laughs> oh, I'll be loving you always with a love that's true always. T-T-T-T-T. George William Smith, 27, of Portland, Iowa, has been sought since March on a charge of deserting his family. The sheriff suspected that sooner or later Smith would show up at the apartment of his former wife here in Nora Springs, Iowa. On a recent Saturday, they saw a woman leaving the apartment. Only it, <laughs> the woman wasn't the woman. It was our old friend Smith. They said he was wearing a dress, low-heel women's shoes and lipstick. He made only one giant boo-boo. He didn't shave for three days. <laughs> you know, I saw a scene exactly like that. Uh, this is this is getting to be... How many of you saw Mondo Kane? Well, there's a lot of pros and cons to that picture. But uh, if you have the certain kind of eye, the right eye, you see large areas of the world in pretty much that same light. Do you know that there's a, uh, a beauty parlor over in Jersey named Mondo Kane? And I wonder if they know what it means. <laughs> Did I think that was just the name of a hit picture? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, speaking of Jersey, I... I, I think we ought to salute Jersey tonight. You know, we've often made disparaging remarks about Jersey. You've heard me say things. I didn't mean it that way. Jersey, actually, I'm an old Jersey fan, and I think Jersey can take credit for a lot of things in this 
country a lot of things that uh, it isn't ordinarily given credit for. You've heard us talk about the drive-in syndrome that's so strong in Jersey. Well, are you aware that the first drive-in was invented by a New Jersey man? Did you know that? The first drive-in was devised by a New Jersey innkeeper in 1762. Men on horseback would ride up and knock down a couple of frozen pizzas at the special window and eat without dismounting. And the Jersey way of life was set forever. And so if you will bring me the Sheik of Araby, please, we will salute tonight the Jersey way of life. Bring it on. Razzmatazz, Rudy Rudy, Rudy Toot, Vop Pop, the Sheik, the Sheik of Araby, your love belongs to me. At night when you're asleep, Razzmatazz, into your tent, I'll creep, creep, creepity creep. The stars that shine above will light our way to love. Oh, you'll rule this land with me, Razzmatazz, I'm the Sheik of Air. All together now, gang. It's our turn now. Let's go. Knees That's enough, Matthew. I think we been enough there to convince them that we're on Jersey's side. You know, speaking of uh, being on the side of Jersey and the wild, libidinous, barbaric life that is led by most Jerseyites, uh, somebody wrote me a little note here. I think he kind of has a point. I don't know where I can find it here, but yes, here it is. Uh, here it is. He says, uh, he says, you know, they're doing all these ethnic commercials, you know, the Rheingold people. And he says, why don't they do one, you know, that's really the way it is. He says, a great scene. You could show the scene of a of a drive-in on Route 46. I think this is where the drive-in flowers, or shall we say it festers to its greatest extent. Have you ever ridden along 46 in Jersey at twilight? There's nothing more beautiful than the, than the, the soft, poetic, ethereal light of 46,922 visible neon signs all saying at one and the same time two words yeah eat somehow it uh, <laughs> says so much about life over there and uh, and of course the cars are bumper to bumper and you hear the muffled undercurrent of swearing and people jabbing their elbows into each other's ribs and all that hey, hey, one more thing too i must say about jersey i how many of you are fans every time you see that place over there is it on Route 46 or is it on Route 20? I forget now. I think it's on 20. Uh, that great big, uh, fantastically ugly, unbelievably uh, wild-looking building that's shaped like a ship. It's on 22, huh? Well, I, I, every time I pass, every time I pass that place, I get a little excited when I approach it, and I get a little sadder when I leave it. And uh, I remember when there was some big clothing store had its uh, headquarters in there. It was unbelievable there. They had they had uh, plastic palms out in front. 
Uh, do you remember that? They had plastic palms, and they said that they served papaya juice back in the ready-to-wear men's jockey short department. And, uh, they, <laughs> and they were always having Mickey Mantle over there endorsing the skivvy shirts and stuff. And they had, they had an automatic, self-refillable, illuminated, technicolor waterfall that ran night and day, and of course it ran even in the wintertime. They had it filled with antifreeze. And it was one of the most beautiful sights in Jersey. Do you recall that at all? Did you ever see it, Matt? Well, I passed that the other night, and I felt a terrible pain. It's now empty. And one of the saddest sights I've seen in a long time is this fantastic ship. It's a ship. It's got about four stories, and it has a bridge. Uh, only in America will you see that kind of architecture, and I'm a great fan of that kind. You know, I grew up in the shadow a couple of blocks away from where I lived, there was a vacant lot. And this, in this vacant lot, there was a four-story, triple-deck, rainbow, tutti-frutti ice cream cone. It was four stories high. Now, somebody in a moment of, of, of fantastic nuttiness had decided that his future lay in selling Eskimo pie bars and uh, tutti-frutti ice cream cones out of a building shaped like an ice cream cone. Well, of course, the inevitable happened. I mean, you know, like, you know, nobody came. And uh, he was stuck with a giant building that was four stories high, shaped like an ice cream cone. What do you do with this, you know? You don't just rent it out to the insurance company. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so <laughs> they had this great building there, Matt. It was four stories high. And, and it, had, it had a circular staircase up in the inside. When you went into the bottom of it, there was like a little stand, you know, and it had a little place where he kept the ice cream and all that. And that was all deserted. Nobody lived in there. But there was a circular staircase that went up through the ceiling and went right up through the inside of this fantastic ice cream cone. And somebody had built a two-room apartment. This family that was down on its uppers or up on its downers or whatever it is people get up and down on when they haven't got any dough, they had built a two-room apartment in the top of this ice cream cone. And there, were, there was a little window on the side. You think I'm inventing this as a fact. It was one of the more... In fantastic sights in our neighborhood and at night you would see them in their little ice cream cone there and they had kerosene lamps they couldn't afford to have electric wires or anything put in there so they would walk around you see the shadows on the wall in this ice cream cone and, and the kids would go down <laughs> and, and uh, you know there it was it was tutti frutti and the paint was peeling off of it and uh, it was kind of a, you know, kind of a great symbol of the whole time. On one end, the tutti frutti world, and on the other end, the guys living with the with the kerosene lamps out of work. And I saw this place the other day on Route 22, this ship, and it was built like a ship. It really is. It's a big building with a big prow on it. It's got a bridge. It's got a fantail on the back, and it's got a, a flagpole up the whole thing. It's got windows all around the side. Of it. It's got a big anchor painted on the side of it, and there's a gigantic sign that says for sale and then it also says underneath it or for rent inquire and I drove past it and I said what a great idea to rent this as a pad I would love to <laughs> how would you like to forever sail upstream on route 22 forever you're sailing against traffic on route 22 and at night you could get out there and stand up on the bridge and you wear a captain's hat and you stand there, you can feel all of Jersey rocking underneath you, and your, your, greatest, your greatest secret goal, you're maneuvering always, you're always working uh, celestial navigation to try to get to the Route 46 drive-in, and you never quite make it. And so we, we salute, we, we really do. Did somebody call and say, Shepard, I, I wonder how much that would rent for, that ship. Uh, can't you imagine me inviting Mr. Leader to come to my pad? 
you know, Mr. Smith come and panic. He said, where do you live? And I said, oh, well, I'm, you know, I've got this big 400-room place. It's fantastic. It's a great big place. It's over there, and it's a very hip, modern architecture. And it's over on Route 46. Just drive straight out for it. You can't miss it. Uh, it's the one with the big whistle that blows when you come near it. And uh, I can see Leader driving up in his 600 Mercedes. Smitty drives up in his 230 Mercedes AM, FM, SLD, TGO, Tiger Moth. And uh, he drives up there and all of them there. And, and there we are up on the poop deck. i always embarrassed when I use that word. But I'm up on the poop deck there and we're serving... We're, we're, we're serving, uh, well, that describes one of my aunts very much. We used to, my father used to call that old well. Anyway, we, we uh, live up there on the poop deck there, and I'm serving the martinis. And <laughs> I come reading out, and, my, and, I, and I say to Smitty, Smitty, I knew it would happen eventually. My entire cocktail party crowd is in mutiny. And uh, run for your life. At the <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you know, I just uh, you get these little flights of imagination. You walk along there. Now, now speaking of flights of imagination, and we opened up here with Skeezix. If you don't mind a little whoopee here. Where's my uh, whoopee horn, please? Whoopee horn. There, very good. Let's see. I got it warmed up. <laughs> One of the more humiliating gifts that I got as a kid uh, concerns itself with Skeezix. Uh, how many of you remember? Is Skeezix still in the paper? Skeezix. And how many of you know his last name? I mean, his name is not just Skeezix. Skeezix. He's got a last name. Don't look like that. Don't curl your lip. Don't get smart with me. He's one of the great Americans. I think I think Skeezix uh, played a great part, a great role in the forming of... A, he's got that gomming look on his face. You ever have the feeling that Skeezix a real gom? Who was the guy that went in business with him to start this little this little uh, repair shop or whatever the heck that was that they started? That snively, snively-looking guy we went in business with? Uh, and he was in the army with him and all that stuff. All right, now, why, why am I mentioning Skeezix? Well, we're talking about the trivia here all the time on the air. Well, I want to tell you, one of the things I think that formed me more than anything else as an elf, as a nymph, as a, you know, squirt, little squirt. They use that phrase around here in the East, little squirt. I wonder what they mean by that. I hate to think. Uh, but uh, I was called this little squirt in my neighborhood, and I was given by my Aunt Glenn an unbelievably humiliating gift. Uh, I was about six years old, you know, and I was right in the middle of my kid tennis shoe period, and I was pretty good with a slingshot, you know, that kind of scene. Uh, I was a good window buster and stuff. And, and I was about six years old, and my Aunt Glenn, there was a occasion, you know, she was the aunt that would, I would only see rarely. You know, there's always an aunt that you see maybe once every eight or nine months, that kind of thing. And when she comes, she smells a little like carnation perfume and flower dresses. And, and it's a very formal affair and everybody sits on the edges of the chairs. And it's kind of embarrassing. A little, just a little bit, you know, the kids and you start scratching and itching. And she would always bring a gift, my Aunt Glenn. Well, I'm six. And my Aunt Glenn gave me a corky doll. Now, <laughs> I don't know whether you have ever seen a corky doll, but this was a corky doll, and it was made it was made out of oil cloth. I'm telling you something. The story, this is the way it is. Did you ever hear of corky? Okay. So it was a corky doll, see, and it was flat. It was made out of oil cloth, and it was shaped like corky, 
was just cut out like corky, see, and it was filled with stuff, and, and it had a big had a big hair. You know, his hair stuck out in the front like that? Well, the hair stuck out like that, and my Aunt Glenn said, here's a, pri- a present, you know, very all excited, and I opened it up, and it was a corky doll. And Aunt Glenn said, that's just right for you to sleep with. And my mother says, oh, isn't that cute? Why, you can take it to bed with you tonight. I said, yeah. Well, (laughs) Aunt Glenn hung around, you know. I think she wanted to see me break in the corky doll. Anyway, Aunt Glenn hung around. It's about 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, and I'm a little squirt. I'm six years old. And uh, it was one of those things, you know, where I have to kiss my aunt while I'm going to go to bed. You know that scene where kiss auntie? Oh, boy, I wonder how many of us grew up kissing aunties or kissing other. Uh, uh, the worst of it was when some stranger would be visiting and somebody would decide that you've got to kiss uh, Howard Gumpox before you go to bed. <laughs> or even worse than that, kiss Mr. Gumpox before you go. And he's sitting there, you know, he's got a red face and he smells like shaving lotion and old Fitzgerald and all that, you know. He says, hey, come on over here, kid. Oh, come on. I'm old Howie. And he grabs you and hits you on the bottom, you know, and the next thing, oh, gee whiz, wow. And, and you, you, this is an American thing, it is. And speaking of old granddad, this is WOR, AM and FM, hit it high there, Matt. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Just Pop and Pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. What was that? Tell us more. Tell you more about what? More, more. Oh, boy. Tell us more. Boy, is that ever a put on? All right, you want to... <laughs> she looks at me. No. <laughs> oh, you want to hear more about the Corky doll? As a matter of fact, I figure that thing's worth about $500 on the camp art scene now. Uh, and, and my Aunt Glenn, my Aunt Glenn came in the room there and, and I, I'll never forget it. It was one of those unbelievable, you know, one of those indelible moments. Did you ever, when you were a kid, now can I ask you this question? You mind if I get a little personal with you? Did you ever believe when you were a kid, was there a myth that ran around that indelible pencils were deadly poison? That if you got indelible pencil stuff on your tongue, you know how it comes off purple? You've seen it? That it was a fantastic poison? That was not a New Jersey myth. Well, all right, here's another question then. Uh, this was an Indiana myth. Everybody, all the kids in Indiana felt that if you got this indelible pencil stuff, forget it. They would find you dead in the boys' room, you know, in, in the boys' john in Harding School. <laughs> An overdose of indelible pencil. Did you, did you ever have this myth? Did you have the, the idea that there was something fantastically explosive in the inner side, inner, the innermost core of a golf ball? 
that if you it, that if that there were certain kind of golf balls that had had some kind of uh, liquid center that if you threw them in the fire they'd blow up. What kind of myths did you have? I'm curious what you guys believed in out there. It gave us something to believe in, Matt. And, uh, that's more than I can say for you. Uh, we had we had another myth too that that I that I'll never forget this one because even to this day I get a little scared when I see this. You know, when I see people do this without even thinking, there was a myth that if you took a can, you know, a milk can, the kind that evaporated milk comes in, you know, just stick a little hole and you pour the milk out, that if you took one of these milk cans and you threw it in a fire, it would explode. And I can remember one time me sneaking out in the back, you know, there was always about nine fires lit in the alley where guys were burning leaves and garbage, and I found this carnation milk can. And I skulked around in the back for about ten minutes, and then I had the impulse, you know, and the real rot. You know, the, the impulse to do rotten things is very strong in us. And I threw this thing in the fire, and I lay down flat, you know, waiting for the neighborhood to go up. And uh, I remember the disappointment when it didn't explode. I figured, I j no, it did not. I just figured I got a bad milk can. Now, is there is there anybody that had that same myth? The golf ball myth is still strong. You know, the Mr. Leader has always had a fantastic slice in his golfing. And I ask him why it is. He says, well, he's scared of golf balls. And I said, why? He says, well, you know, they blow up. And I said, well, Bob, don't you think that, you know, that you should cut out this playing golf if you think that? He says, well, you know, uh, guys climb Everest and they know it kills them. So uh, <laughs> the golf ball myth is still with us. How many of you, how many of you ever, speaking of myths, how many of you ever had the myth that if you swallow gum, You'll get your stomach stuck together, and no matter what you took, you could take four pounds of X-lax, and it wouldn't help. Uh, <laughs> did you did you ever have that myth? Anybody? Well, I don't know. Uh, yes, I know. Oh, we had that. We had the idea, the very strong idea. There were certain golf balls that were filled with an acid that was so strong it was like the universal solvent, and was an absolutely killing. We had another myth. You know that my father, f f to the last day of his life believed that if you got the right number inside of, I think it was the Lucky Striker, was it old gold packages? There's a number inside of them. And he would open them up all the time and look at it. And that if you got the right number and you sent it into Detroit, you'd get a free Ford. He believed that. And he also, <laughs> he also believed, he also believed that there was a certain kind of 1933 penny that was worth untold millions. That if you ever got that penny, you could just retire. And also, he believed, too, that if you got certain numbers and certain kinds of Indian head pennies and sent them to Henry Ford in Detroit, he would be more than happy to send you a Ford Deluxe with radio, if you were nice. And uh, he, he, for that reason, he saved Indian head pennies. This was part of the myth. Oh, oh, listen, the quicksand myth. I don't even have to tell you about that. Uh, my, uh, no, no, the quicksand myth was so strong that every kid in my neighborhood thought that somewhere in some vacant lot there was quicksand, and especially where there were cattails. And if you got in the quicksand, it was just all over. That's it. And that, uh, uh, I, yeah, we uh, kids would disappear, you know, from school. And of course, what happened was that they moved to Morton School, or they moved to some other place, like they went to the uh, Parish School. There was a name called Parish. There was also Catholic Township School. Uh, there was, you know, all the schools around there. But as soon as they would leave, the myth would go. Well, the quicksand got them. And uh, for a long time, I remember people thought that poor old Martin went down in the quicksand heel first. And uh, the, the quicksand myth, and I always felt that whenever I read about quicksand, quicksand played a strong part in many kid dramas of the period. That is, radio dramas. 
You know, you hear about all these radio dramas that all these uh, so-called experts on trivia are talking. Have you noticed that, that there hasn't been one article on trivia that mentions that that whole thing began on my show here uh, about 1956 or 57? And I called it trivia, too. And in fact, in 1961, Columbia University gave me a big plaque. You know, it's the only plaque I've got. It says, uh, Shepard gets the trivia award for 1961 as the discoverer of this new art form. And last night I saw Les Crane claiming that he started this. When did he start that? They're crying out loud. Gloria Steinem thinks she did it, you know. <laughs> Everywhere you go, well, all right, so trivia is trivia. But uh, nevertheless, one of the big important things that ran through the kid dramas of that time were incipient dangers that had to do with, with, uh, with nature. Uh, for example, kids uh, in, in the Jack Armstrong series were always being trapped in a cave with man-eating bats. And uh, there was a great myth about bats among kids. And, of course, I was an expert on bats anyway. There was another thing about boa constrictors, but the most important one, I think, was the over- and the all-inclusive quicksand myth. Uh, I always felt that if you got... Yeah, mad dogs were another thing. Everybody... Uh, oh, yeah, whenever... whenever uh, I, I'll never forget once in a while this poor old klutzy dog that lived across the street. We had we had really... You know, there's dogs in many ways when, when, when you're a kid. You know, a dog is just a dog. You don't think in terms of dogs being pedigreed or good dogs or bad dogs. They're just dogs. And it was this big klutzy dog that lived across the street that was part Airedale and part Oldsmobile. And uh, this dog would just lay there, you know, and, and walk around out in the yard once in a while and yawn and belch and... You know, it was just a plain old crummy, stinky dog. And one time this dog... <laughs> All right, this is the way things started. One time, Flick was out in the back there, and he had got 50 cents or something to mow the lawn. So he's mowing the lawn, and this dog jumped up out of the bushes. He was fixing the lawn, you know. He got with the lawnmower, and the dog jumped up and ran around the yard barking. He got scared. He was awakened from his sleep for the first time in nine years. And he jumped up and ran around and barking, and Flick hollered, Mad dog! Mad dog! And, and for days, that poor old klutzy dog was was tired with the brush of being a mad dog. <laughs> Kids would walk in long circles around him, you know, mad dog, mad dog. And that was in the days when they used to call, whenever a guy went, went on a tear and killed 28 people, you know, with a shotgun, he would be called a mad dog killer. Uh, <laughs> a mad dog killer loose in Cleveland. And uh, the Mad Dog played a big role. You never hear about Mad Dogs now in this day of anthropomorphism. Uh, it's somehow, you know, you know, with the dog psychologists and the dog analysts working on every corner, you can't have a Mad Dog. And, of course, with the guilt complex that everybody has, they say, look what we did. Look what rotten society did to that poor Airedale. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's anthropomorphism. But, you know, uh, oh, we've got to do a commercial here. Let's see. Speaking of uh, psychological hang-ups... We got happiness here, and uh, it's a new and different Chinese restaurant. It really is, you know. You hear all this talk about restaurants and food, but this is a good one. And the prices are unbelievably inexpensive, but it's extremely pleasant. Uh, they have food from Sichuan, Shanghai, Peking, and Canton. And it's gourmet food, excellent food, really. And it's called the happiness, just happiness. And it's Broadway between 93rd and 94th. And let's see, they have uh, they have uh, a bar there. They're open seven days a week. And uh, I think you'll find it pleasant. It's 93rd and 94th, and it's called Happiness. And uh, by the way, are you aware, uh, I don't know whether people know this or not, uh, but I'll tell you this, that uh, 
that I'm that I have I'm very fortunate. I'm one of the few people I know who is happy in his work. <laughs> and, and and I'm fortunate in a lot of ways. I I don't know anybody or many people in radio who have absolute control over accepting or rejecting a commercial. Did you know that I have that, Matt? Well, I do. Uh, an absolute control, and I, uh, especially when I'm dealing with things like, like restaurants. Uh, what's the matter? <laughs> oh, well, now, don't get mad. I mean, if you bought some stuff and you thought it was rotten, that's because I've got rotten taste. Uh, <laughs> it isn't necessarily so. <laughs> that, that I'm infallible, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, sure. It's, uh, I, I'm the first to admit that that basically I'm I'm a freewheeling klutz. I mean I'm not I'm not making any anti-slob comments here, but uh, I will say that we turn down more commercials than we ever take, and uh, especially among restaurants. And I think you'll find this is a good one. We've tried to always uh, stick with that scene. At least you can chew the food; it doesn't chew you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think you'll find it pleasant. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's one of the one of them nights. Excuse me. I have to practice up on my jersey. Does anyone know where I can rent that ship over there? That's fantastic. Did any of you ever go to that store that used to be over there? You mean your father used to buy his stuff there? I can't believe it. He was the only guy I know then that had worn neon colored pants. Holy smokes, I'll tell you, what a place. Uh, I, I went over there once. It, it's too bad that place is out of business because it would be absolutely the epitome of American pop art in action. Uh, of course, we had we had a couple of those in our neighborhood. I, I remember a, a gas station. How many of you ever saw a gas station in the shape of an airplane? And that yeah, they had an airplane. It had wings sticking out. It had a big motor in the front, and and where you know where they kept the grease rags and where the guys sat around and listened to the radio and told dirty jokes. You know the places where they have in gas stations where these guys are all sitting around and calling up chicks and you know all the stuff. You know what a gas station is like. Well, that was up in the cabin where the plane was. And they had little steps coming down, and you drive under the wing, and the motors, believe it or not, the motors were the gas pumps. And he would reach up, you know, that looked look like a tri-motor airplane or something, and the motors were the gas pumps, and he'd reach up, and the, the pipe would come right down out of the motor. He'd reel it down, and he'd stick it in the back of the car, and the old man loved to go there because, he, you know, he was, he was hung up. Speaking of, uh, of, of being hung up, of course, that was the day when an airplane was, a, you know, just a big deal. And, and speaking of being hung up, one of the greatest Diners I ever saw in my life, and I'm an aficionado of diners. Being a, a basically a, you know, a slob, I, 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 I vibrate. I can hardly find myself driving past the diner without getting a secret, feel, you know, think that, that want to stop. You have the same problem, Matt. It's the diner hang-up. Well, one of the greatest, absolutely. And I would like to give a suggestion to anybody who who is thinking of opening a diner. One of the really great diners that I ever saw in my life was a diner that was near the airport in Chicago. And instead of building it to look like a diner, you know, a dining car, this whole scene, they had gotten themselves an airplane. They had an old airplane. They bought a DC-3 airplane. And, and it was a real one, by the way. It was, not the, it was not a phony one. It was a real DC-3. And they set that thing down on the ground... And they, of course, they took the wings off. It just—it was just the body of the airplane, and you could see the cockpit where the where the pilot was, and the great big tail stuck up in the air. There it was, you know, this thing is big when it, when you put it on a vacant lot. And that great big rudder stuck up in the air, and on on the rudder they simply had written DC three diner. 
They called it the DC-3 Diner. And they had it in great big letters. And they had on the side of it, they had an insignia, you know, looked like, you know how they paint on the side like Flying Tiger Airlines? They had a gigantic hot dog on the side. It was painted like that and it had wings on it, you know, the hot dog with wings. And it really was great. It had an arrow running through it, you know. And they had written on the top, they had something like Piccadilly Airlines or something, you know, just a little jazzy. But it was a real DC-3. So when you came up the steps, they had this aluminum thing, you know, like you go into in, a, in an airport. And, of course, it was set in concrete, so it didn't rock or anything. But you'd come right up this thing, and you'd enter the doorway. There's this little curved door, exactly. And there would be a chick sitting there dressed like an airline hostess, and she was running the cash register. And they just had taken out all the seats and all the jazz, and they put larger windows in it, you know, so you could look out over the street. And you were actually in a real airplane, and they kept this sort of airline decor in there. And they had this aluminum, this beautiful aluminum bar, and everyone... It was a fantastic success. The kids really dug it, you know. They they go over there and sit in the old DC three, and uh, this this uh, this kind of thing, I think, was far commoner in the Midwest, perhaps, than it was here. I, I saw another. Speaking of uh, of uh, great uh, items of pop art, one of the uh, one of the most popular hamburger joints in uh, in the whole area there, hamburger and hopper, hot dog joints was out on Route 6, which is out near the lake in Chicago. It was a real uh, um, jazzy suburban district. They had trees and, that, and mountains and everything out there in the lake. And this guy, uh, nobody never thought in terms of people desecrating the scenery in those days. You know, this was always considered good. That, that this guy had knocked down about 18 miles of beautiful forest. And he built the most gigantic, the most fantastic, unbelievably obscene-looking hot dog. He built it out of plaster. He built it out of, out, of, out of canvas and plastic and bricks. It was a gigantic hot dog. And it stretched for about four miles through the forest. And you could see the dunes climbing up in the back and the lake, you know. And it had big, big flags flying over it, neon signs. It was a hot dog that was outlined in red neon, you know, with mustard all over it. And it was called a hot dog drive-in, of course. And, and everybody hailed it for miles around as, as, as one of the, you know, it was like uh, civilization has come to Hammond, Indiana, and they were very, uh, this was a big thing at night. The old man would come home, you know, he'd come running up the back porch and says, all right, let's, uh, okay, he'd say, he'd say, all right, Ma. He's hollering at my mother, say, all right, Ma, put away all the stuff, uh, turn off the stove, we're going out to eat. Get, all right, come on, kids, into the car, we're going to the hot dog. Hooray! You know, and everybody in the back of the car, and we would join 18 million other lemmings. All of us going through the, the, the streets of the steel mill, hissing and steaming over in the distance. We're heading towards the hot dog, the hot dog drive-in. Uh, and, and he had asphalt all over the street. He'd, he'd paved the entire dunes with asphalt, and the cars would all drive in there, and his, his piece de resistance, let us put it this way, the specialty of the house, was the foot-long Colombian hot dog. Don't ask me what Colombia had to do with it. I'm talking about South America. He had, he had somewhere uh, on the surplus market had bought 18 billion surplus Colombian flags, little tiny flags. They were, where he got them, I don't know. And he would serve these fantastic hot dogs. They were a foot long, and they were in a gigantic foot-long, uh, big foot-long bun, and they would pour about a half a pound of, of uh, juice all over it, you know, and ketchup and crud and piccalilli, and he would stick right in the middle of it a little plastic Colombian flag. Well, now, this was style, I'll tell you. And, and, and he, had, he had one hot dog called the Mayflower. Well, this had a little plastic ship he'd stick in the middle of there. And he had a Bolivian sinker. 
Now, the Bolivian sinker, now, I don't know why the Bolivian sinker, but the Bolivian sinker was orange ice, you know, this orange sherbet. He'd put orange sherbet in orange crush, and he called it the Bolivian sinker. Had a little flag sticking up there, had a little Bolivian flag. And I, <laughs> this, this, uh, this, was the, this was the first inkling of one-worldism uh, in, in uh, northern Indiana. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, oh, you know, speaking of, uh, of great myths of the time, uh, I don't know whether this was just a localized myth, but one of the great myths when I was a kid, uh, of course, my father was a repository of fantastic numbers of myths, was the elephant's graveyard myth. And uh, my father used to say, I remember he says, you know, he was always reading books about the jungle. And uh, I was hung up on reading jungle books. I read a jungle book about, uh, oh, what was this uh, guy, this guy, what was his name? There was this guy, and uh, he had a big beard. And I found this book down in the basement. I found it next to the icebox. And there was, I had, I had already formed a long time ago, since I had been here hiding spicy detective westerns and all that stuff uh, in the icebox our old icebox in the basement, I had formed an idea that old books that you found in the basement were dirty. That any old book was in the basement that was hidden under all the papers was a dirty book and that they were hiding it from me. And I discovered this dirty book and it was about this guy in Africa. And he had this long beard and he wore this helmet, the big pith helmet. And I read that. I remember the first line that told about what he, how he dressed in the Africa and I thought that's where the dirty part was. I'd heard that word before, but I didn't know it was spelled like that, see. And he wore this, this funny helmet, and uh, he was, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a certain period in your life when you go through that you see dirty stuff everywhere you look, this certain period of a kid's life. You do this. Some people never grow out of that, and they turn out to be Terry Southern, or they write for the uh, realist, you know. Yeah, have you ever felt, if any of you are realist fans, have you ever felt, you know how the John Birch Society, it sees communists everywhere? that under every Cretan daybed is a communist hiding, and that every bad thing happens is because of the communist? Have you ever felt that in the realist that they're that way about sex? They look at a light switch, they say, oh, boy, that's, I know what that stands for. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> or, or you have a picture of a light bulb. Oh, I know what that is. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, in other words, th wherever they look, they see a phallic symbol uh, of one kind or another, uh, which is the same hang-up as the John Birch Society seeing a communist everywhere they look. But I'm this kid. You, know, you go through that period when you do, you know. And I'm down in the basement and I found this dirty book. And I'm always going down there and reading. It was all water covered. You know how, how old books get to be water soaked and they have the wavy pages and they have the red, uh, the red cover, you know. It, it, it's sort of faded and it's inked all gone down to the pages and you could smell and little silver fish run out of it. I'm reading this thing and I'm looking for the dirty parts. And, uh, of course, it took me uh, like 400 hours of reading and I found out at the end that there were no dirty parts. But it was always about Africa, and I always imagined that it was a dirty book anyway. And so one day, I am upstairs, and the old man is telling me about the elephant's graveyard. And uh, he's, he's telling me about how in Africa there is a place where all the old elephants, when they know that their days are up and this is it, they wander off into the jungle, and unerringly, they go to this one place to die, and, and no one knows where it is. Uh, one or two men have seen it and have reported on it. And it has remained lost in the gigantic dark continent of Africa. And that is the elephant's graveyard. And there is an untold fortune in fantastic ivory there for the man that can find the elephant's graveyard. And uh, I had read about the elephant's graveyard in this book. And I thought, gee, you know, uh, maybe I, I thought it was kind of a dirty book and I shouldn't know about this. 
And my father says, yes. He says, you know, I've got a book in the basement that tells about it. And he ran down and he got this book. And I didn't want to say I read it because I didn't know whether I should read all of it. Have you noticed that there are at least three new books now uh, catering to the people who look in the books, in books, in libraries and everywhere for just the dirty parts? Have you noticed that there's one there's one publisher out now that has brought out an entire and I'm not talking about that book of of a uh, of a uh, reference nature you know where you can look it all up I mean there's one I think it was Grove Press just recently brought one out <laughs> that all they've done is go out and cut out all the dirty parts from a lot of books and put it in this one great new big new dirty book. Uh, so you don't have to wade through all that art stuff, you know, all that description of the moon and the sun and the rising, uh, you know, the tides and the and the the earth and the leaves changing, you know, all that uh, that rotten, unfamiliar, crummy, dull stuff. Get right to the meat of it, and uh, <laughs> and that's what's happening in our time, you know. It's it's uh, we sure live in a literate world. Well, my old man read this book to me, and he's and. Uh, and he always said that one day when he when he when he got enough socked away, he was going to go off into Africa sometime. And he was go- yes sir, he was going to organize an expedition, and he was going to get Sherby. This was his old pal Sherby, who used to drink and holler with him and play poker. He was going to get Sherby. He was going to get Gertz. <laughs> These were his old buddies. How many of you remember old friends of your father? Father friends. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to, to think of your father, you know, when, when you're a kid, it's hard to think of your father, of you at this stage in your life being that official to other, you know, little guys around. Well, well old Sherby and Gertz and Zudok and my old man used to sit there in the kitchen and talk about going to look for the elephant's graveyard. And I will award you a brass figwiggy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of that guy that had the beard. Huh? Frank Buck? No, God. Tarzan, did you say? Ah, oh, Tarzan, he couldn't grow a beard. He never shaved. I never saw Tarzan with a beard. No, this guy was, was, was in the jungle there, and he had a beard. Now, come on now, and I'll give you his initials. T.H. They even made a, a giant movie of him. And I felt kind of funny going to see it. I thought I was going to see a dirty movie again. I never could get out of my mind that that was a dirty book. T.H. And it was a book that apparently had played a tremendous part in my father's growing up world. Ah, you don't know. All right, think about it. And this was about a guy who was in Africa, and it later turned out to be a gigantic hoax. This guy was never in Africa, and it was all, uh, you know, a flapdoodle in a yard wide. Which, of course, described most of my father's reading material anyway. Flapdoodle in the yard wide. Which describes most of our reading material, by the way. Flapdoodle in two yards wide. Now, speaking of flapdoodle, gang, don't forget, make your reservations for the limelight now. Be the first in your block to make the scene. We'll be at the limelight five minutes past ten until midnight. Give them a call. They're down there in the village right now. They've got your cheeseburger waiting for you. Be the first in your crowd to go all the way.